Welcome to the Work Before the Work podcast for account executives, SDRs and sales professionals looking to prospect better, sell more and get promoted faster. I'm Paul M. Caffrey, co-author of the Work Before the Work and in each episode we deconstruct the hidden habits elite sales professionals use to outperform the competition. Please share and enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined by Moore Asseline, founder of DemoToClose.com and FDTC University. Moore helps startups go from 100k to 15 million AOR by improving sales processes, playbooks, and importantly, people. Welcome to the Work Before the Work podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. A question that I, I thought probably makes sense to jump straight into because it was the thing that stood out most when I was doing the research for this episode is you're able to help people achieve a 50% close rate from the demo. I know that's something that probably everybody listening would love to reach. But how do you achieve a 50% close rate from demo? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I'll tell you what a bad demo looks like and then um, what a good demo looks like. A lot of folks like to watch trailers before paying for a movie, uh, especially when going to theaters. And so the reason why I bring that up is the, the way demos should be, they should be like movie trailers. So you're not really giving them the whole thing. You're giving them enough for them to say, wow, that's interesting. I'm ready to move forward. Whatever move forward actually means, whether it's to book another call, to actually close if you're more SMB. Bad demos spend more time treating it like a movie, so they actually go through like a product tour. And they get into the weeds, and they show them everything. Um, And so one of the ways you have to to improve the demo win rates is to completely change the entire demo talk track um, and make it really custom versus something that could be copied and pasted for every lead that comes through. I bet people listening are thinking, oh, I've spent the last six or 12 months mastering my demo track and I can't repeat that every time. Oh God. So what makes a great shorter demo or a great custom demo or a movie trailer style demo? The answer would be dependent on what the prospect's main pain points are and or goals. Um, the entire demo should really be based off of how to solve their biggest problems in the shortest period of time. So let's say for software has over 100 features, let's say 50 features, and then you know you have yeah. sub-features on top of that. And the prospect has only one or two main big pain points. And if you were to look at all of the features that your software has, really only three of them solve that pain point. The idea is your demo should really be comprised of those three features. And if you still have time, if you cover that on the demo and you still have time to show them anything else that could be helpful, but is not necessarily vital to solve that problem, then you can ask permission to say, hey, can I show you some other stuff that I think would be very helpful? But otherwise, your demo is really focused on solving those core pain points or core goals, which yeah. leads you to, well, if I'm only showing less features than the entire demo, I don't really need an hour. And if you're doing discovery and demo com- combined, maybe you just need 30 to 40 minutes. Maybe if you do a discovery and then a demo as a separate call, Maybe the demo could only be 20 minutes. Um, every demo will be different depending on the problems that the prospect Look, it makes total sense. Uh, we all know it's it's harder to do a shorter demo, right? Because you, if you can only show them three things, they want to be the right three things. And we've all seen reps and you know, probably done it ourselves where you've, you've delivered a great demo and they're really happy, <coughs> but then you've kept going and you've kept going and you've showed more and more. You think you're adding value? Really, you're just making the other person think, this is complicated, this is too much, this is actually too big for me. I'm overpaying, I don't need all of that stuff. There's a whole lot of things there that can happen which will really um, frustrate 
you because you think great demo. What's your thoughts on when they get challenged to do a demo on first call? We've all been there. You come on, you a little bit of chat. It's either qualification or discovery. And it's, no, I just want to see a demo. The marketing collateral yeah. makes you think you're going to get a demo straight away. Yeah, it's true. It says schedule a demo and then you get a demo and then it's a discovery call. Um, I'm a I'm a, a believer in don't hold the demo or the pricing hostage to the prospect if that's what their expectation. I think it's very important for the salesperson to set a goal, less of an agenda. Agenda is important, but a goal is more important like straight out the gate when the call starts. That way, it almost gives you permission to ask certain questions. And that could be like, hey, Paul, glad we're able to connect today. Let's assume we built a report. So glad we're able to connect today. The goal of today is to learn a little bit more about your challenges and see if we can help solve it. If we can't, I'll be the first to tell you and recommend you to other solutions. If we can, then great. What we'll do is we'll go through a custom demo that will show you how to solve your biggest problems in the shortest period of time. So I just have a few questions to ask if that's okay. I'm asking permission. They're not going to say, chances are they're not going to say no to it. I'm sure you're going to have some allies. They're going to say, just show me the demo. In that case, you have two choices. You can just show them the demo and then sprinkle in your discovery questions throughout, which is not a bad idea. Or option two is you can challenge them a little bit. You can agree, but challenge challenge them a little bit and say, yeah, sure. Happy to. So I'm curious, if I show you the whole demo, we'll probably need to carve out a full hour for this, given that I'm going to be showing you everything. Would it be better if I just showed you certain features that are appropriate to like what you need that way it's not overkill so you're giving them the option in that particular you're not resisting you're you're agreeing but you're now giving them the option where the option the way you've structured your question benefits you to ask discovery questions if we take things take things a step back um particularly in in the world of founders 2023 was tough 2024 looks like it's it could go either way at this point right um what what advice would you give for founders who are in the position of they've had a product they used to do the, the demo, had the whole sales process. They've maybe now pivoted to a different part of, of their product. And they want to transition from the founder being the main salesperson to having someone else sell it. What advice would you give a founder who is looking to help the first sales hire or first few sales hires actually demo their software? Do you think founders should document? what good looks like. So let's assume it's founder-led sales for, let's call it six to 12 months, gotten sales under their belt and they've closed and they have somewhat of a process. They should document it. Documenting means what questions to ask, what features to show, um, the call recordings that they had, what good sounds like. Not all founders are really super tech, uh, sales oriented. A lot of them are more technical, so they don't really have the sales skills. Again, it's a, it's a version one of it. So, But document it because what happens a lot of times is if they haven't documented it, the First sales rep joins in, nothing officially documented, but they're now just watching the founder do some demos on the fly. And then maybe they're doing their own demos with the founder shadowing them, but there's no documentation. So I would say document anything that you've done that you've seen has moved the needle for a demo. Great. And those uh, keeping those documents central, making them easy to access, always key. And there's going to be a level of humility because what's probably going to happen is the salesperson who comes in is probably going to start selling it better than you. And that's, that's an interesting thing to, to think they about. They should. Yeah. point of hiring a, a good sales team, they should be better than you. I mean, founders should know their product best. I mean, or, I mean in my opinion, a founder should really be the best salesperson technically. You know, right? To their yep. product, they should know how to sell it. But 
you got to hire people, you know, you got to hire a professional. That's why you hire a CRO or VP of sales or a CMO, whatever it is. They know they've done this before. It's not their first rodeo. Yeah. I mean, like founders, the good news for founders is, right, You uh, your conviction can mask a lot of a lack of sales skills. And it's also fun and cool to buy from a founder or to be contributor. <laughs> Whereas I guess that first salesperson you'll be hit with, is the product not finished yet? Who are who are your references? What, what other customers are using this? It becomes a very different conversation. So I guess a little bit of patience is also needed because your your sales, your first sales, there's going to be a higher higher level, of higher standard they'll be held to than a founder. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned conviction, which is I think is like the secret sauce to any great salesperson. We talk about like some people talk about like enthusiasm. People think enthusiasm means like oh you're enthusiastic, you're loud, you're loquacious. I don't think that's what enthusiasm means. I think enthusiasm means you have conviction behind what you're like what you're saying and how you're saying it. And um, I think founders, when they're hiring for their sales reps, they should be looking sure for like certain, like, you know, general table stakes sales skills, but conviction when the person speaks, do they sound interesting when they're talking even about anything? That's why I like asking questions to like applicants about what they do for fun and what they're passionate about. Because if they can explain to me what they're passionate about with conviction good if they explain to me what they're passionate about but it doesn't seem like they're passionate about it then what's going to happen when they sell my product that they're not going to be passionate about impossible like they're just not going to be passionate about my product more than their kids or more than their you know side hustle it just won't happen um so that's something i i would look for um and also for the founder i mean like if they know that if the expectation is we don't have certain features how long you've been around certain questions that can cause the prospect to shy away from doing business with you they should have those objection rebuttals or responses ready for the, the rep to prep them i mean that's what i did when i joined one of the first startups as an ae um the founder is like hey we don't have a lot of things these are our top competitors you're going to get these and these questions so here are the, here's how to prep for them and then i would recommend them doing mock demos with the reps uh way in advance so they don't just jump on the call for the first time yes um some organizations call it a license to sell. There's lots of names out there, but yeah, having that uh, out there because leads are valuable assets for companies, right? At the end of the day, we don't want to be using what could turn into a piece of business as practice for somebody or reducing the, the likelihood of something being lost because of that. Yeah. What are a couple of good questions that a founder could ask uh, a salesperson to see if they're passionate about their hobbies, I guess, about what they're interested in. Questions do you recommend founders should throw into interviews? If they're interviewing a salesperson that has a job already, they should be asking it, what are you selling? What problems is what, what problem is it solving? And then what what's your typical discovery look like? Like what questions are you asking? And the reason why I say that versus having the rep or the applicant do a, a mock demo or mock discovery call on your product is they're already selling a product they know how to sell, right? Like they they already know that. And so you want to see like what good looks like and what's the closest to that than their existing role where they apparently are hitting quota consistently. So asking them, what problem does your product solve? Who is it solving for? So who's the buyer persona? Uh, what are your discovery questions? So it's sort of role play. You can role play that. I would, I would tell them to role play that a little bit. Um, and it should feel comfortable and natural to the salesperson because they do that on a daily basis. As a side note, I did that. So I, I do also consulting for startups. And so yeah. one company asked me to, um, they need help hiring reps. And so I said, okay, fine. So one of the things that I did was I said, I'll do the first initial like interview with the rep. And the rep's resume showed that they hit quota in this company and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. And so I asked them the same question. Like, what, pro- what problems do they, 
does this product solve? And let's do a quick role play of like the discovery and all, all, you know, what questions you ask and all these things. And the rep just like fumbled completely. And the rep happened to be actually uh, a friend of mine who said, hey, I, you know, I gave him a chance to like apply because he had a resume and he had not only had a resume, but it was his experience showed that he was aligned to what we're looking for. And I'm like, listen, I love you as a friend, but I got to give you feedback. You probably won't make it to the next round. It just wasn't good. Like I asked you about this question and you fumbled. And then he's like, he's like, you know what? I got to open up with you. I actually don't work at this company anymore. I got to figure out something up to make up because I don't work there anymore. It was a little weird scenario. Long story short, he like opened up and, and told me the truth. And so that's why I like asking those questions because if they are really there and they really are hitting quota and they really are good, it should come off very natural. If they're not, then you'll see they'll stumble. So that's one question. Um, obviously what they do when they're not working, at least I like, some founders don't like this, but I love when an employee or an applicant has a side hustle. I, I love it because they get a sense of what business is like and you, you need discipline, you need ambition, you need enthusiasm, you need all that, all those things to run a business. And if they don't have a side hustle, I'm like, what do you do when you're not working or what do you do for, you know, on the weekends or after work? And they tell me, oh, I like to watch football the whole day. There's nothing wrong with that. But I, if I had a rep that said, or an applicant said, oh, I listened to this podcast or joined a marathon or a league, that's interesting to me because they're, call it competitive, they have, they're ambitious. That's one question I ask. So you'll notice it's like, these questions aren't necessarily like, tell me about your experience. It's more about what do you do when you're not working? And there is one question that like I don't necessarily ask it. And I don't necessarily, I wouldn't say, hey, you should ask this, but I've done it before. And, and it's interesting. The sell me this pen scenario right? like tell, tell me this pen yeah it's like a big you know like oh you should never do that i'll play the devil's advocate yeah. side of that if you're asking sell me this pen and you're expecting the sales rep to sell you the pen then that's the problem of the entire question but if you're asking the question to see how the rep responds in the sense of are they asking the right discovery questions like hey paul are you in the market for a pen or how often do you if they're leading they're answering that question with discovery questions that's what you should be looking for. So that's why I'm not super anti that question. But if somebody messes that question up, they haven't done the basics to research because it's nearly that first thing that comes up. That's a, it's a joke now, nearly in, in some ways. Is, I remember I posted it on LinkedIn piece. once and people were ripping me apart. They're like, how can you say that? If someone asked me that, I'd walk out on the interview. I'm like, all right, then you're not a fit, right? Again, I don't ask it on on interviews, but I've consistently, like when I've done interviews, but I, I have in the past and it, with that intention, it wasn't bad. Again, I wasn't looking for them to like convince me. Um, yeah. Another another question I would ask them is, what skills are you, are you working on? Like, what sales skills are you particularly working on, or where do you feel like there's a, a room for improvement? And they'll tell me whatever answer there is, and then I'll ask them why why that. Um, or I'll ask them like, what skills do you have? How are you working to improve that, and why did you pick that skill? So those three questions as follow up. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot there to help particularly help people get started, right? And um, what is important is to have questions prepared in advance and to have some sort of score sheet rather than you talk to a salesperson in an interview, you, you know, A's, everyone can talk. It can all go, it'll probably go really, really well unless you're a little bit prepared. But maybe let's jump into the A issues for a minute. So um, we've done the we've done the interview. We've, we've got the role. We're getting started. Maybe we've just finished our onboarding and, you know, that could be, that could vary depending on size of company. What what do you recommend an, an AE does in the first, say, you know, three to six months to establish themselves? Is there anything that they should focus on? Any tactics they should try to deploy to like get ramped up as quickly as possible? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think a few things, and these are probably unconventional practices, but I, I've done them in every role when I was a VP of sales. Um, if I were an AE and I was running a company full-time, um, I'd probably spend, I'd want to spend a, a couple of weeks, not at full-time, but like a couple of weeks answering support tickets. So shadowing someone from support, answering support tickets, so I can learn a little bit about the product. That's really how you learn the product, right, on the support side. Um, I'd probably want to spend a little bit of time on onboarding just so I can figure out like what happens like on the onboarding side. It's also learning the product a little bit. Um, I would study the buyer personas and the, in the industry itself, less so of the product, although the product is important, but I'd study the buyer persona because I want to understand the psychology of the buyer more so than the product itself. I'll get to the product, but once I understand the problem, I'm like, oh, wow, that's a real big problem. How do we solve it? Oh, this is how we solve it. That's going to be a, a eureka moment for me. Um, so I would do that. I'd obviously listen to a bunch of call recordings. Uh, I would want to get on um, calls as quickly as possible, not necessarily to do the entire call, but maybe to just do the introduction of a call. Let's just say you're the prospect and there's another account executive that's like full-time and I'm the new hired person. I'd say something like, hey, Paul, my name is Moore. I just joined XYZ Company. I just want to introduce myself. John will be doing the demo, but I'm going to be here for any support, blah, blah, blah. And that's it. I just want to get my feet wet as quickly as possible. Um, I, um, I'd do a bunch of mock demos on my own, just record myself doing demos and going through the actual demo, like through the mechanics of it. So turning on my Zoom, going through the demo, recording it. If I screw up, I screw up, recording it, playing it back. And over time, in a very short period of time, if you start like doing the mechanics of like the demo or the calls, the discovery, you, you get warmed up really, really fast versus someone that takes three weeks, waits three to four weeks until they do their first dry run. I'd rather not. I'd rather just do that as quickly as possible. Yeah, those would be like some low-hanging fruit things that I would do. Really, really like that more. And for me, you've got to be constantly improving as a sales professional. And you're obviously taking that to another level when you're starting in a new role. Um, I'm guessing you treat that like prospecting as in this is, you schedule this in for an amount of time a week or by the day starting off to make sure that you do it? Or is, is there some other way that, that you try to check it off? I think a lot of hiring managers should have, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a very strong assumption here um, that a lot of hiring managers have an onboarding schedule for the rep. So um, if they don't, then <laughs> that's a question a rep should really ask before the interview or like during the interview, like, you know, let's just say I joined, what's onboarding? Is there a schedule? What does that include? Otherwise, yeah, I was joining a startup and they don't have anything. And you're figuring it out on, on the fly, which is essentially what I went through when I was an employee at these startups. Joined as a first sales hire or the first employee. Um, and I created my own little onboarding plan, even though the man, the CEO was involved, but I, he wasn't babysitting me. I was, you know, I had to go I figure it out on my own. Um, yeah, I definitely bake it into the calendar and stick okay. to it as much as Great. possible. Great. And 2022, 2023, we saw a switch. There was always an expectation for account executives to do pipe gen. And that's something which has gradually increased. I think 2023 became the year when it's expected 100% across the board that you will, you will do that. Before, it was maybe reserved for people to become top performers. What do you think outbound looks like in 20? In terms of, will AE still need to prospect? Yes. In terms of, how are they going to prospect? I think that's going to dramatically change. I feel like, I don't know the exact term for this, but like, you know, it's like retro, like some things that were out of style are coming back into style, like certain sunglasses, certain shirts, clothing, whatever it is. I think the same thing is happening in sales, where if you look back in like 
anywhere from like all the way from the twenties to the early millennium. How are people prospecting that are roller decks? So they would go to networking events, business cards, right? It was like really old school. And then 2006 and on came and no Rolodex. It's like, we're going to email blast everybody. It's more spammy. I think we're, we're seeing that like retro happening again, where things are going to slow down from a prospecting. You, if you really want to stand out and get an appointment or gain interest, it's going to be through your network, through your Rolodex, through your relationships. Um, it's going to require a little bit more leverage from the branding side of the business so for example a sales rep should be posting content creating content marketing should create more content that creates more demand and your more awareness that way when you prospect someone's already heard of you it's a lot like if i were the sales people at salesforce i've spoken to some of them they said everybody knows salesforce so when i reach out to somebody they're like yeah i know who you are it's a lot easier of a sale than being at a, start, a true startup so I think that's going to change where reps are going should create their own little personal brand so they can generate demand or awareness. That way, when they do cold email the prospect, the prospect can say, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with who you are and what you do. I think that's going to change, um, which means scalability in terms of like sending volume is going. It may still happen. I, just don't, I don't think it's going to be effective. Um, yeah. Oh, That's how I prospect, I, right? I send one-to-one messaging all the time. I don't send hundreds of emails. I mean, I'm in agreement. I I see, I see that being the way more personalized messages leaning on your network a little bit more. Shorter cadences, I guess, as well. Shorter cadences, um, more nurtured cadences, less pitchy, um, more multi-threading before you even reach out to somebody. So maybe reaching out to an employee of a company and getting yeah. some information from them, maybe reaching out to a mutual connection and seeing if they can make an introduction. All these things take time, right? Because then you, when you have to, if you're not reaching directly to the prospect, but you're reaching out to call it the sphere of influence. So a mutual connection, maybe a former boss, whatever it is, or an employee of the company, you're waiting for them to respond. And so that takes time. And so instead of actually reaching out to the prospect in one week, it's going to take you maybe three to four weeks, depending on the response rate of the mutual connections or the employee, whatever it is. Um, I think that's okay. I just think companies are set up, a lot of startups are set up for failure because the board is saying, we need X more pipeline by this, no matter what. And then the CEO say, all right, VP of sales, go get us more pipeline. VP of sales goes to the sales rep. We need more pipeline. And everyone's after chasing a a goal that is unrealistic. And then it folds, and, you know, it, it sort of implodes. And then they fire the VC, they fire the VP, and then they find another one, and then they fire the reps, and it's just a vicious cycle. Yeah, I think it's uh, something which I remember Jeff Bezos of all the people talking about it recently is you put the metric in with best intention because that's how you actually track it. But then something has changed, but nobody realizes there's been a change. So that nuance means you're now tracking the metric a little bit wrong. And let's face it, it's very rare for AEs to miss uh, pipe generation targets. You know, it's uh, we'll, we'll say no more. Well, but let's say you're an account executive and you've been you've been given your territory. How should they, you know, plan to work through it? How should they organize yeah, themselves I, for the year? So, uh, like a very tactical approach would be: let's assume that this is not your first rodeo, meaning you've been in the company for some time. I would look at all of my deals. One, I would I would look at data and make my 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 next move. That's about that's the most accurate approach you can take. So open up your pipeline, look at all of your closed one for the year, then run a bunch of filters on that report saying, all right, what industry was, uh, which industry was, which deals that closed one had came from what industry? So you'll see out of all of these deals, this one came from MarTech. I'm just giving you an example. All right. 
So now we see that the most common industry or the most the uh, the highest recurring industry in all my closed deal ones is industry A. All right, great. Who were uh, the buyers in that industry? Like, who did I um, communicate with through that entire like cycle? Oh, the CMO, the VP, blah blah blah. Log that down. How did I originally reach out to them? Oh, I reached out to them through this channel. And what was my tech? So just reverse engineer what already worked for you to close pipeline for that year and just repeat that. And then you can ask yourself, like, what's potentially going to change in 2024? If nothing, then just repeat what you did. If something's going to change, maybe you want to spend more time asking for mutual connections to make an introduction versus going straight to the prospect. Then add that as a, as a sec, uh, as an initial step into your cadence or prospecting. But I mean, the best way is not to just not to recreate the wheel. Look what what's worked. That's what I did when I went full time on my own as a solopreneur two years ago. Um, I remember I had. I had like maybe one or one or two months to close three deals. Otherwise, I'd have to either dip into my savings or get a job. I didn't want to do neither of them. And so I said, all right, well, I attempted to blast out emails. I did that. Didn't work. So, all right, that's not working. So, all right, I have now two more months, one more month. I looked at my like experience. I said, well, I worked in. Uh, legal tech. I worked in Martech and I worked in cybersecurity. Between legal tech and Martech, I probably have a lot more experience. Um, and specifically, I was a VP of sales at these early stage companies that either had one sales rep or didn't have a sales rep and it was founder led. One of those. I said, all right, I got to find legal tech companies, startups, and Martech startups that have a CEO, maybe one or two sales reps, but no VP of sales or sales manager. There's a big gap there. It's probably founder led focused. And I found a handful, not even a lot, but it was really, really aligned to my ICP. I cold emailed maybe five, two or three became clients of mine within one month, right? So you're not doing it that way means you're not going to have a huge pipeline, but your pipeline's going to be super, super accurate. Uh, and so that's what I did. I just looked at what worked for me and repeated it. Yeah. And it's yeah, big pipeline is one thing, but it's, You'll notice better sales professionals uh, and better sales teams, you know, they'll need a lot less pipeline coverage because they'll have the high percentages of, say, 50% from your demo to close and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I like that. Get focused and look at what's worked. But also, I guess what you're also saying is if it's not broken, maybe don't feel you need to change things. We don't always need to change. Yeah, why um, not just stick with the same playbook in 2024, right? I'm mindful that we're, we're coming on time. Uh, I'd love to keep going, but I'm going to shoot uh, three or four rapid fire questions past you. Let's see how we get on. So what is your number one prospecting tip? Build familiarity before you cold prospect or build familiarity in order to cold prospect. So what that means is it's a lot easier right now if I cold email you you're more likely to open it and reply than had I cold emailed you before you asked me to go on your podcast. Why? Because there's a level of familiarity. And so what can tactically, how does that work with account executives? Maybe start a podcast. It doesn't have to be a fancy podcast on a particular topic within your industry and, and then invite your buyer persona to those podcasts. Build a relationship at first. So now you have familiarity or you engage with their, their content for a few weeks before you send out a cold email, you're more likely to get a response versus just going straight for the jugular. Cool. Really like that. What's your number one sales tip? Unselling. Um, it's the concept of having the prospect in mind and not your product in mind. So I call it like, help me, don't sell me. And that, that idea is um, don't ass- instead of assuming that you're the right fit for the prospect, assume that you're not the right fit. And if you go in with that mindset, when you do do 
your discovery calls, you may say something like, hey, Paul, I'm not sure we're the best fit. I have, I'm not trying. I need to better find out. And when you do that, you don't come off as a sales rep. You're coming off as a consultant. You're more of an advisory. Um, another example of that would be, um, you know, if you're doing discovery and the prospect is describing a particular problem that they're having, and it doesn't seem that bad. It seems like it's somewhat manageable. They've done it through Excel spreadsheets or whatever it is, and they're maintaining it. Unselling means, hey, Paul, it seems like you have like you're managing this pretty well. Why even then consider it something like this? Why not just stay with what you're currently using? Most sales reps don't want like, to ask that question because they they're scared that it's going to plant a seed in the prospect's mind. It's like, oh, maybe I should. That seed is, if it's there, it's already planted because when the deal progresses and it gets into a later stage where you're now showing price and contract, blah, 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 the prospect is going to say, you know what? Why am I about to invest 20K, 30K when I have it here? It's working fine. That's what's going to happen later on. So I don't plan to see it. I'm, if anything, it's causing the prospect to think, well, it's not going to work for us because of this reason. And what that does, it, it gets the prospect to convince you of why they have urgency, why they have problems versus you doing all that light work. Great. Really, really like that. Two more questions to shoot past you. What's your number one tip for getting promoted? I'd probably shadow and, and get befriend more of the mid-market reps and try to source more mid-market deals on your own, potentially. Um, I mean, you sh- the thing is, as, as a sales manager, you you want to see that your SMB rep or whatever rep is capable of handling a bigger deal. And so maybe have that conversation, like what would it take for me to, you know, the easiest thing is go to your sales manager and ask them, what would it take for me to go from SMB to mid-market? What is the criteria? And then if they give you this criteria, then go after that. I mean, that's easy. Instead of trying to guess it, ask them. Yeah, it makes sense. Have it validated by somebody else before you go and, I don't know, spend X on that executive education yeah. when you actually needed something more practical. Or potentially yeah. find another company that you you can jump to that they're hiring for a mid-market role and, and roll your dice on that. Yeah, absolutely. And final question. What sales book do you recommend people check out? It would depend on the stage that they're in. So if they're entry level or late stage or like seasoned or enterprise, I haven't read a sales book in a long time. I genuinely, yeah, I mean, I like psychology books for, for to learn. Like you're going to learn sales by doing sales. I think you're better off. Sales is really about psychology. And so if you um get almost any copywriting book there's there's plenty but get a copywriting book um like you'll you'll learn about psychology and you can apply that on your sales i mean that's how i learned sales it's not like i bought sales i bought sales books but i more so paid attention to the psychology of human interaction than just apply that to sales right like how to win friends and influence people like the dale carnegie book or like that one of the concepts there is like you give a compliment that gets the person flattered no nope, nope. that's a sales tactic um right um i, I would do that I'd probably say also like the Chris Voss book, Never Split the Difference. It's not a sales book. It's a negotiation type of book. That's also good. Um, but again, it, it would depend on your like if you're entry level, then I think there's like a Jeffrey Gitmore or whatever his name is. He has like the Red Book of Sales. It's like really entry level. I'd probably recommend that. If you're an enterprise, enterprise rep, um, my buddy Nate Nasrallah has a book, Sell With. It's called Sell With. It's like for really enterprise, multi-threading, complex deals, tactical as hell, the book. Yeah, Nate's, Nate's content is great. And that book is very enjoyable as well. But I mean, a yeah. lot of good ones there. And, and interestingly, the first time Chris Voss has been mentioned. Uh, so oh, really? that is, yeah. well is an excellent book full of tactics to help at the later stage of your sales cycles. Yeah, eventually I'll write my own book. But uh, yeah, just and also like there are salespeople that are fantastic when they meet up 
you know, when their friends introduce them to somebody or they're in the social event, nothing work related or they're in the elevator and they can strike up a conversation or whatever it is. That's a sales skill. The problem is that people, salespeople, they put on their sales hat on, you know, their nine to five, nine to six, whatever it is. And then they change character. It really shouldn't change the way you communicate outside of the arena should be the same. You communicate inside, right? So if you do get into an elevator and you're able to strike up a conversation, why should that change when you get on a call and try to build reports? It, there's a bunch of crossover in your personal life in sales. So it's something to think about. Really, really like that. And I look a lot. I'll be, I'll be looking out for your book when it comes along more. For people who want to, who've enjoyed the show and want to find out a bit more about what you do and how you might be able to help them, where can they reach you? Yeah, so if you're a startup um, or founder or CEO, um, I would go to demotoclose.com. If you're an account executive and you want to improve your discovery, I, I, I give you a link. Uh, you're going to share it with them. FTTCUniversity.com. If you go there, there's um, on the bottom, there's 24 really tactical discovery questions. One of my top ones that I use on calls. Um, over 5,000 sales reps have downloaded already. So um, that's free. I would check that out. Great. So that link is in the show notes. So just take your phone out of your pocket, click it, and you'll be able to get that very, very quickly. More. thanks so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Work Before the Work podcast. For show notes and additional resources, go to paulcaffrey.com forward slash podcast. If you got value from the episode, and take out your phone, give a rating in your podcast app. It's only one click. And if you have 10 seconds to spare, then add the sales tip that resonated most and how you think it will help your sales performance. This really, really helps the show. Thanks again, and I'll catch you in the next episode.